Welcome to the first episode of the BBHQ podcast. In this series, we'll be discussing all things Burley. We'll explore what being Burley is all about and discuss some legendary and other unknown historical figures that we believe exhibit traits of a Burley individual. I'm Damien, one of the hosts, and I'm joined by my friend and brother, Brent, for this episode. Let's dive into it. All right, so for episode number one, we're going to be talking about George Hackenschmidt. So a little preview on him, um, and then we'll talk about a little bit of notable news, and then we'll get into the episode. So he was a world champion wrestler, a strongman, a weightlifter, as well as an author, a sports philosopher, and uh, much more. So he was largely regarded as an athletic phenom all the way from childhood. And we'll kind of see um, in some of the stories from his childhood, um, the impressive feats that he was able to accomplish. He was also an inventor of some of um, modern lifts, um, some of the most popular lifts. Uh, we won't give those away yet, but um, it's kind of astounding to see what he uh, created. And so he believed, um, kind of a, a famous quote from him, if there was one secret for athletic superiority, it was heavy lifting. And so that kind of goes right along with our, our friend Damien. He was also given the nickname, <laughs> the Russian Lion. That is uh, an intimidating nickname. And uh, that's a guy that I want to hear more about. Uh, if this talking about heavy lifting, then I'm interested. So notable news in the world of burly and strength training. Uh, most recent news is going to be from Larry Wheels setting a world record dumbbell incline press. Uh, which is 275 pounds, which is ridiculous per hand. Uh, I wanted to pose a question as to what each of us think we may be able to incline press dumbbells. Uh, so it's been a long time <laughs> since I've actually done incline dumbbell myself. I've been doing a lot of flat recently. If I had to put a guess on it, um, I've been training with a log 280 incline. So maybe 140 pounds dumbbells, maybe. <laughs> Um, you have a, a guess for what you could do, Brent? Yeah, man. I mean, I think I'm right along there with you. I mean, something like one, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not exactly. Um, you know, maybe incline, a more. you know, pressing, maybe not exactly my strong suit, um, incline pressing, probably even further down on the list in terms of my strong suit. I mean, if we were talking about incline deadlifts or something like that, maybe be right <laughs> up my alley, but, uh, incline presses with dumbbells, I give myself like, Maybe some 85, something like that. Give me about a, a third of what Larry's repping out over there. Man. That was a pretty clean-looking video, too. That was impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I could believe 85, maybe maybe 95 on a good day. Yeah, yeah. A little <laughs> spotter help. Maybe a little yeah. slingshot on. Yeah, next time we, uh, we meet up, for sure. Uh, so next thing to talk about is going to be a competition I have coming up. Uh, I've got my second strongman competition coming up soon, October 24th. Uh, it's kind of an odd list of events for there, um, the comp. So we've got log incline press, like I was mentioning earlier. That's 280 pounds for reps uh, in 60 seconds. Seated sled pull, which is hand over hand, uh, over 400 pounds. Hercules hold, which is two cars, um, just for time. And a sandbag toss over bar. Now there are four bags of different weights. And I believe it's a 14-foot bar at this point. <laughs> uh, so I've actually never done that, and I still need to, but we're three weeks out, so hopefully I can get that in before. Yeah, that's an interesting um, event. Have you ever thrown anything over the head like that before? No. Um, the closest I've ever gotten is like kettlebell swings <laughs> for that motion, um, <laughs> like the hip hinge. So we'll see how it goes. I don't think the bags are too heavy, um, and the height's not crazy, but obviously one mistake would cost a lot of time having to go pick it up yourself and bring it back. We will see. All right. So as kind of mentioned before, we're going to be talking about um, George Carl Julius Hackenschmidt is his full name, uh, which I'm going to abbreviate a lot of times to hack or maybe just a Russian lion uh, for brevity. So he was born back in 1877 and um, he actually died 90 years later in 1968. So kind of in going with that name, Russian lion, he was born in Dorpat. Um, which from what I was able to research, um, this is kind of like a county in, uh, in terms of like American terms in the governorate of Livonia, which was a part of the Russian empire, um, from 19 or from 1721 until 1918. And so that area today is part of modern day Estonia and Latvia. 
Um, however, even though he was born in Russia, he actually lived most of his life in London. Uh, the Russian Lion uh, had uh, parents as well, obviously. Um, his father being George Friedrich Heinrich Hackenschmidt, uh, who was of Baltic German descent. His mother was Ida Louise Johansson of Estonian and Estonian Swede descent. Uh, the parents were both normal in stature, strength, nothing that would hint at a child being born uh, as legendary as uh, Hack or the Russian Lion ended up becoming. Uh, his maternal grandfather was said to be a huge and powerful man, though, so maybe some genetics uh, from him came into play. Yeah, I heard about that that legend that he was. Um, I don't know where that came from, whether that was after uh, Russian Lion had been out, been around for a little while, but I found that kind of interesting that that was became a, a legend about his, his lineage. So we kind of talked before about some of these feats um, in kind of his early childhood. And so we see those coming in um, when he was in secondary science school. Um, the school was Riau School of Dorpat. And um, so, you know, a lot of Russian names here, probably going to be butchering these um, for the entirety of this podcast. <laughs> but a Riau School um, kind of from my research, that's probably age 10 to 17 or something kind of around high school age. So to kind of get an idea of um, how old George was during this. And so he was a multi-sport athlete to say the least. He was, or he participated in cycling, gymnastics, swimming, running, jumping, weightlifting. So he really did a little bit of everything. And he actually credited his gymnastics to be um, responsible for a lot of his agility and uh, control of his body. And I think our friend Damien, he had an extensive background in gymnastics, right? You could kind of relate Yeah, that. you know, double tuck, backflips, and, you know, all kinds of crazy things. But, uh, no, I, I did actually participate with the, uh, the cheer team, if you remember that, at, uh, at college. Um, so I wasn't doing any flips, but I was tossing people who were doing flips for a little while. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, like you see the Olympic gymnastics, and they're always they're always jacked. They always got um, strong upper bodies, and you know, I can imagine um, the mentions that control of his body and agility and stuff definitely coming from uh, gymnastics. But kind of get into some of these these crazy feats that were mentioned. Um, it was said that the feats uh, astounded his teachers, which I kind of find interesting like how his teachers were involved with some of these things. For <laughs> yeah. example, one of these legends was that he could lift a small horse off the ground. And so like that, just I'm having trouble wrapping my head around, like what's going on here? Why are, why are there small horses at his school? Why yeah. is he trying to lift them? I mean, in our liabilities uh, these days, there's no way you're going to be allowed to try to lift a horse off the ground. But like, I mean, I don't, I don't know what constitutes a small horse, but talk about a crazy feat. He also was said to have lifted 276 pounds overhead. And the real kicker here is that's with one arm. And so, I mean, you know, we're talking high school age here. You know, I think back to my high school age, I was like a, I don't know, I was like a ripe 130 pounds. Um, I probably would have considered myself lucky to lift like 95 pounds overhead with two arms. And this guy's out here, 276 one-handed. Um, so, you see, like, the, the child prodigy coming in here. I think we're on two different ends of the spectrum, obviously, because when I, I remember being in eighth grade uh, wrestling, um, and wrestling, I think, contributes to some of the uh, agility and control of his body, because um, a lot of the football players would do wrestling for that as well. But um, back on topic, um, eighth grade Damien uh, was six foot, 220 pounds. So <laughs> I... I don't know that I could have done 276 pounds overhead um, at, maybe at some point in high school, but man, that is ridiculous. I mean, we were just talking With about two hands though, right? Not one hand. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, definitely not one handed. Uh, I mean, we were just talking about Larry wheels, incline pressing 275 as a world record now. So to see this guy do something with 276 pounds overhead, one handed is crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you, it makes you wonder sometimes, like, what has become sort of a tall tale from, I mean, he sets this record in, I think it's 1898 at a uh, weightlifting championship of lift, lifting like 275 overhead with one arm. And it's like, 
you know, how much of that is a tall tale that's extending all the way back into his childhood? Did he ever lift a horse off the ground? But it certainly makes for some interesting stories. Yeah, I mean, I was also just like yeah, uh, you benching 405 in high school, you know, same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, but that's on video, though. Oh, right, right. You, <laughs> I just said you lost the video or like, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he, it, it was a little grainy. Oh. And like, you know, I mean, the guy might have been a little bit tanner than me, but, you know. <laughs> so another one of these um, childhood feats, it was mentioned that in a wrestler's bridge, and maybe you can expand a little bit more on like what that is, but he could pull 335 pounds from the floor to his chest and then press it overhead. And so this is like bridging on your neck. And kind of what I got from it is almost like a yoga pose, like when you do a bridge pose, but maybe you can expand a little bit more on that. Yeah. So a wrestler's bridge, um, from what I remember of, uh, you know, just a couple of years of wrestling when I was younger, um, think of laying down on a mat, uh, with your back touching the mat and the way it happens is let's say your shoulders are kind of locked in place. You know, there's something there keeping them from moving. If you were to, um, push your body towards your shoulder blades, um, what would naturally happen is your spine is going to, I don't know which way that movement is, but it's um, going to arch up a little bit and it's getting your, most of your back and your lats off of the mat directly. Um, so kind of, it takes place nowadays with bench press where you retract your scabs, get a tight upper back, your chest naturally comes up off of the bench. Um, kind of a similar position, that was maybe a little bit more exaggerated than that. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a tough thing for me to imagine, like to, to grab. And it's almost like a, like a straight arm pull down, like pulling this like 335 pound weight, like onto your body and then pressing it. So, I mean, that's just kind of a, a crazy feat to me to kind of wrap my head around. But. So moving on to the young adult uh, hack or the Russian lion, uh, some of his early life information here. Uh, he graduated at 18 years old in 1895, uh, upon which he started as a blacksmith's apprentice, uh, apprentice uh, at the Lossman factory, and it was a large engineering firm. Uh, he then joined City's athletic, athletic and Cycling Club. He became obsessed with this and uh, just winning in general which will become a theme over most of his life. He began developing an interest in wrestling and weightlifting at this time. Uh, and this was kind of a turning point in his early adulthood. Uh, he met George Lurich in 1896. Uh, Lurich was an Estonian Greco-Roman wrestler and strongman. He was only a year older than Hack, and he would later travel to the U.S. and compete in wrestling. Uh, he died uh, following that, during World War I of typhoid fever. Alurik was touring through the city, challenging any and everyone that would challenge him. Uh, Hackenschmidt took the challenge and was defeated. That kind of story is like a little wild to me. Imagine just like, there's this wrestler dude and he's just like going city to city and like anybody can challenge me. It's like just kind of a, oh, I think it speaks a little bit to like a different culture. And as we kind of get into the wrestling, kind of talks about how, like I want to say wrestling was maybe like the soccer of the world or maybe the NFL of America. Um, and like this kind of thing, I guess was common. Yeah. It's crazy that people were just so ready to challenge other people. Um, I'm thinking nowadays, uh, for instance, with a lot of the strength sports, people will come up with, you know, 12 week, um, mesocycles, uh, or periodization blocks in preparation for a competition. And some people, you know, Olympic athletes, will actually plan four years in advance um, for their training and know what they're doing and the, uh, just offer that one competition. Um, but to see somebody willing to go challenge anyone and everyone uh, on a moment's notice is pretty legendary. Yeah, you definitely have to have some confidence in your skill set. But yeah, that kind of, so that instance kind of seemed to spark his, his wrestling career. And that's um, really what's going to pertain to like a bulk of this podcast is um, he's got a long detailed wrestling history and it's probably what he's most known for a um, little overview. He was participated in about 3000 matches, which again is an astonishing number. Like when you think about now, of course wrestlers can fight a lot more than like MMA fighters can, but I mean, they're fighting a couple of times a year. 
I mean, 3,000 matches is ridiculous. And as we'll kind of get into things, um, actually won't spoil it yet, but um, a large number of those were wins. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But kind of his stature here, so he clocks in at about five nine and a half, which I will say that is quite the ideal height. That, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to disagree I, with you. <laughs> I think you're five nine, maybe with your hair gel. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think five nine and a half might quite classify me. That might be about dead on what I am. And you know, there's some <laughs> some background research of that being the ideal height for a human being, but um, for a male human being. Uh. But I will will say those. There's uh, that research for another podcast. We did clock in at a burly 204, which I will say is a slight bit heavier than what I'm rocking right now. <laughs> uh, and it was said that he his biceps measured 19 inches, a uh, 52-inch chest, um, and a 34-inch waist. So definitely got that kind of bodybuilder kind of physique going on. In terms of like his wrestling temperament, he was said to be very calm self-assured um he had this inner peace about him when he wrestled and he was very self-aware in terms of um, going up against challengers and so it's kind of it's interesting how he got into his wrestling career so um he was involved in some weightlifting as, as well as kind of some strongman events but he sustained a serious shoulder tear that kind of you know put an end to his strength career and that's kind of when he seemed to jump into wrestling. I guess that was something that didn't quite aggravate his shoulder quite as much. I mean, throwing that 276 above head with, with one arm, I can imagine that jacking your shoulder up pretty good. Yeah. So in, so following that um, shoulder injury in 1898, so he would have been 21, 22 at this time. Um, he leaves Talon, which I think is in Dorpat, um, that, uh, kind of where he was born. And he moves to St. Petersburg um, for the athletic and cycling club there. And he was training under Dr. Vladislav von Krajewski. And so this is where some of his inspiration comes to um, really pursue wrestling. He suggested, uh, this doctor suggested that Hack could become the strongest man in the world, which is um, obviously very ambitious coach. Um, <laughs> So he kind of got rolling with his wrestling career. He um, defeats this French wrestler uh, by the name of Paul Pons in 1898 at the age of 22. Um, he goes on a little bit of a hiatus, though. He actually served in the army, um, and he served as a first lifeguard of the Russian emperor. And that sounds a little cryptic, um, but he's essentially a personal bodyguard um, for Nicholas II, who um, was actually... Um, the last in his lineage, um, and he was actually executed towards the end of his his reign. Oh wow! But um, so Hack then defeated Mister von Schlemming. Definitely butchered that one uh, for the Russian championship in 1899. So again, uh, still very young at this point. Uh, in June of 1990, he entered a 40-day wrestling tournament. Um, where he won championships in both Moscow and St. Petersburg. It's kind of, I don't know, wrapping my head around. I mean, most people are prepping and getting ready for like a one-day wrestling tournament. Do you know, I mean, you wrestled some in high school. Do they have any extended wrestling tournaments like this? No, I mean, the only thing I can think of is uh, even now with Strongman, uh, there's maybe a two-day or maybe even a three-day for nationals or worlds um, just because of the sheer number of competitors. But it's not like the same person is uh, competing every day. It's, uh, you know, I compete on Friday and then different weight classes compete on Saturday and Sunday and so on. So to think that someone was competing for 40 consecutive days is crazy. Like even competing for, you know, a nine hour strongman day uh, destroyed me the last time I did it. So yeah, I, I can't really wrap yeah. my head around uh, the 40 days. I imagine, I mean, my, I don't know how many times, just maybe like a, once a day or once every couple of days, but I mean, I can imagine getting real beat up just uh, going up against multiple opponents over the course of that time. Um, he kind of continued on to win multiple tournaments um, following that. In 1901, he won the championship um, of the World Tournament in Vienna, which was considered the... He also won the championship of the World Tournament at the Casino de Paris, 
And so kind of at this point, um, his career is really, is really taking off. Um, he picks up a manager by the name of C.B. Cochran. And so this guy was really kind of helped him gain, I guess, national or really world um, recognition because he was really able to take this from just a guy who was wrestling to a guy who's putting on a show. And so they created like this music hall boom um, is kind of what they called it in professional wrestling. And so, you know, instead of listening to some opera woman or, you know, something along those lines in these music halls, they've got these burly boys in here wrestling and they were able to draw large crowds. I kind of think like throwback to like uh, Roman gladiator days, having these crowds come in and really um, he became a major like superstar uh, kind of in this environment. Kind of makes me think WWE as well. That's what I was just thinking of. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Maybe that's the modern equivalent of uh, of this because wrestling really is only prevalent in college athletics and at the Olympics. So maybe WD, WWE is just the modern, um, you know, coliseum or modern uh, wrestling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of that's a good point. It was something that as I kind of went through this to see, like, there almost is no legitimate professional wrestling these days. Like that that sport itself is seem to completely die out. I mean, a lot of the best wrestlers, I mean, they compete in the Olympics, but then, you know, after that, you know, I mean, you see some of them in MMA or elsewhere, but definitely not what it was back in Hackenschmidt's day. And so, yeah, he continued on wrestling in these music halls, opera halls, theaters, um, really gained worldwide popularity. He was drawing crowds from all over. Um, it was, he was kind of quoted that um, he became a dominant grappler and they said that he easily defeated every man that he met. And so, I mean, it's, it's one thing to beat everybody, but I mean, just easily. Um, and we'll kind of see that. We'll talk about his record towards the end, but uh, we'll kind of see that bear out. And it even got to the point, there's kind of a legend that he would take on five wrestlers in a single night. And so it's just like one up, you know, he'd take that guy out, next one up, take that guy out. I mean, just, you know, we talked about the 40-day tournament, but I mean you know, facing five guys, can you imagine like an MMA fight? Like, you know, they, these guys square off, you know, there's a winner and then it's like, all right, bring the next guy in. Like that would be unbelievable. Yeah. That sounds like something that, you know, would be more, well, you, you maybe you would find it more often in like a gym at night with uh, someone as a, as a kind of like toying with new people, you know, like, Hey, bring in the next guy, but to take on five seriously trained wrestlers in a single night, that's a, it's a crazy feat. Yeah, absolutely. So he kind of continued his tour through England, um, essentially defeating everybody. Um, he defeated an Italian um, by the name that I'm going to butcher again, Antonio Pieri. Um, he beat him twice. Um, and he kind of, he made it, this Pieri, um, this Italian, I guess he, he was pretty salty after this. <laughs> he pretty much made it his life mission to find somebody who could beat Hackenschmidt which is yeah. kind of wild. Like a lot of people, like maybe they'd make it their life mission to beat him themselves. But this guy's like, no, I'm going to find somebody else to beat him. So that was kind of funny. But so he finds this guy by the name of Ahmed Madrali. And so this guy goes by the nickname of the Terrible Turk. And I mean, mm. talk about some good, good nicknames. I mean, we got the Burly Boy Commander over here, but I mean, <laughs> the Terrible Turk, the, yeah. the Russian Lion, like th these are solid. Yeah. And so they drew huge crowds, um, but it was kind of reported, um, kind of hysterically, that in two minutes, Hack picked up Madrali and threw him onto his arm, dislocating his shoulder. And, you know, I mean, that was it. It was over. Um, you know, later on, he actually faced him again, and Hack destroyed him again. And so, I mean, this, this Italian, Pieri, he was very poor, I guess, at scouting talent, because that, you know, that failed miserably i mean it could also just go to reinforce the point of how dominant hack was like you know the terrible turk or ahmed may have been a solid competitor against everyone he'd faced previously but facing hack for the first time really um, solidified his his position as just being so much better than everyone else yeah i mean yeah i think you make a good point i think just the the level that this guy was at in terms of wrestling i mean he was just you know, on another level, it's just um, really no adequate competition, at least for a while. So kind of his, his next 
opponent was Tom Jenkins. And so we finally get an American in the mix, which is kind of good to see. And so he was an American heavyweight champion. And so he was kind of touted to be Hack's toughest opponent um, at this point. However, Hack pinned him in two straight falls. And so a fall, I think, is just kind of like a like a round. A lot of times they did two falls, and so it's just kind of like two separate rounds. At least that's kind of, and it was like until somebody was submitted or tapped out, or you know, that was my understanding of it. Um, kind of actually interesting story with them. Later on, they became good friends, but um, Hack was clearly superior when it came to wrestling. And so, kind of after that victory, um, he actually. He left Cochran, um, his manager, to go on a tour to Australia and the United States. And he actually faced Jenkins again in Madison Square Garden. And kind of where he was originally a Greco-Roman style uh, wrestler. And kind of, I'll let you kind of expand on um, that style. Um, you probably understand that a little better than I do. Yeah, so I, I still kind of have a basic understanding of it. But um, from what I know, Greco-Roman is a you know, holds above the waist. Um, there's some other restrictions in place, um, but there's a lot of technique that goes into it. Um, some more rules and some more things that are off limits uh, compared to the catches can rules, which is what they were doing here. Yeah, I kind of got it that it was a lot more of like a, like it's very slow and it was maybe just more strength based. Whereas this catches catch can rules was a lot more about technique and agility and speed, those kind of things. But kind of by this time, so Hack originally kind of started off with that that Greco-Roman style, but he really kind of moved into this catch-as-catch-can. And it was kind of, he kind of preferred that style at this point. I guess it it sounds more effective, um, just kind of, you know, my my basic understanding of it. You know, this was a tough battle again with Jenkins, but again, he defeated him in two straight falls. And, you know, they listed the time here, in which I thought was kind of astounding. Um, the first fall was 31 minutes. The second one, 22 minutes. And so, like, I mean, we see these MMA fights going on now. And, like, you know, some of these heavyweights, guys this size are, you know, they're huffing and puffing, you know, into the second round, which is, you know, seven, eight minutes into the fight. And, you know, these two guys are going at it for 31 minutes. That's kind of tough to wrap my head around. I mean, definitely some cardio involved with these guys. Yeah. um, From my time wrestling when I was younger, um, I remember in middle school, uh, it was three periods. Um, and I think they were only two, maybe three minutes long each. <laughs> so at the end, you've only, if you wrestled all three rounds, you've only wrestled between six and nine minutes. So to think that there was a 31 minute and a 22 minute fall is pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of times in, um, jujitsu, they'll do rolls and sometimes they're rolling for, I think sometimes up to like nine minutes or so. And they talk about how gassed out you are at nine minutes. I mean, this is 31 minutes. So it's, it's unbelievable to me, but kind of with this win over Jenkins, he was kind of crowned the freestyle heavyweight champion of the world. And so kind of from there, um, he kind of goes back to England. He beats Madrali again, which was the, um, our terrible Turk. And so this Madrali guy, he just had no chance getting absolutely dominated, you know, three separate times. And think of the guy that like went out of his way and made it his life's mission to find that dude. And just year after year, match after match, he's like, man, this, nobody can beat this guy. Yeah. Just, you know, his, his buddy here, I don't know how well he knew him, but I mean, he just set him up to get, to get <laughs> squashed. <laughs> and that's a good friend right there. Yeah. But, uh, so kind of while in England, he goes up against Joe Rogers, which is an American, uh, beats him as well. Um, so this is finally where we get into Hack's toughest competition. And so we'll kind of see out of those 3,000 matches, um, right now we're at zero losses. And we're kind of going to see, is that going to change here? Um, is that kind of going to remain the same? And so this fight against Frank Gotch, and so he's an American um, from Iowa. And so um, Hack sails, you know, across to the U.S. to fight him. And so kind of what was written about um, this fight, I thought was really interesting from a, a wrestling historian who, you know, I never heard of this guy, Mike Chapman. He said in his quote, in all of athletic history, there are a mere handful of rivalries 
between individual stars that have become almost as large as the sport itself. And so he says, in boxing, such matchups as Sullivan, Corbett, Dempsey, Tooney, Louise, and Khan, Ali Frazier are part of boxing folklore. He says, in wrestling, there was only one, Gotch Hackenschmidt. Wow. And so, you know, being honest, I don't recognize some of those boxing guys, you know, except for Ali and Frazier. But kind of to compare these guys to them is kind of crazy. So this took place April 3rd, 1908. And it took place in Chicago. So, I mean, this is definitely, you know, some home court advantage here for the American Gotch. And um, so when Hack comes over to Chicago, he actually, they had these events set up so that he could train publicly. Everybody would get to see him and be some good publicity. They actually refused to train publicly. And um, he would just kind of like walk around the lake there in Chicago. Um, some people kind of pointed that, you know, he might have been struggling from some sort of depression at this point. There's some other evidence of that. Um, but that was kind of something that was, was thrown out there. But kind of when the, uh, the fight started or the, the wrestling match started, um, they stood on their feet wrestling for two hours until Gotch was able to secure a takedown. And he attempted a toe hold, which I tried to look that up. It's kind of like some sort of, you know, you're trying to, you know, you've got somebody's ankle and foot grabbed and you're kind of trying to twist it in a way it shouldn't twist. But kind of after, I mean, at this point, you know, it was kind of described that Hack kind of quit a little bit, which, I mean, you know, you can't hate on him too much after, you know, two hours of wrestling, you know, he was out of gas. Two minutes into anything, man, I'm gassed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, yeah. So he actually goes back into the, you know, the locker room or, you know, whatever it would have been, and um, he doesn't come back out. He actually forfeits, you know, the second call. And so, you know, part of that might come back a little bit to, like, either his cardio being gassed out or, you know, maybe the depression is at play a little bit here. Um, oh. There are also some some questionable tactics going on it was kind of talked about and i'll let you kind of expand a little bit more but um you know he was he was said that gotch was covered in oil and that <laughs> he was thumbing hack which yeah. you know he was even drawing blood with this and then it was said that he even punched hack in the face once and yeah so from what i could find um one of the sources um from a rogue documentary um both of these matches, uh, the one we'll talk about later as well, shared a common theme of, you know, Gotch breaking the rules, pushing it to the limit. So from what I could find, there are actually papers, like the newspapers at the time, almost unanimously, maybe except for one, admitted that Gotch was cheating um, to an extent that even um, Americans were like, man, um, this, this is ridiculous. Uh, Gotch probably didn't deserve to win that. A lot of people were speculating that the referee where the match was fixed itself and hack followed all the rules, albeit somewhat limited rules with the catches catch and match. Um, but gotch got away with a lot of rule breaking. Yeah. I was, I was really disappointed as I was kind of going through the research on this and seeing like, I mean, you know, hack was so dominant and seemed to be the absolute, you know, the top of wrestling and he goes up against somebody else who's supposed to be like, you know, a highly skilled wrestler. And it really comes down to like a whole bunch of sketchy tactics and cheating. And of course, I mean, everything's always a little bit tainted, you know, when you get, you know, all that kind of stuff involved. And so, yeah, it was kind of, it was disappointing to see this for sure. And so they end up with a rematch, um, September 4th, 1911, again in Chicago. So again, kind of a, um, you know, a home match set up for Gotch. And so this drew a huge crowd. So that there were 30,000 spectators, um, which the gate was 87,000. And so I kind of ran that out in today's numbers. It's about $2.3 million. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's, you know, that's a good, you know, take in yeah. in terms of definitely a wrestling match. I mean, I don't know what they charge, you know, for some of these MMA matches now, maybe more than that. But, and so this one, as you mentioned, was very controversial as well. And so, you know, Hack claimed to have hurt his knee during training. And there was actually kind of some weird controversy going along with this. This guy by the name of Ad Santel kind of, so he's trying to almost take credit for this injury. Um, 
he said that he was paid by gotch backers to cripple hack um, during training. And so, which was kind of strange. And then hack refuted it. He claimed that he didn't even train with this guy. And he insists that, you know, his, you know, the injury that hack sustained was kind of through natural training. And so, you know, I don't know if it's like a pride thing for hack not to admit that, you know, this guy got him, but I couldn't really figure out, you know, there was some weird, controversy and contradicting stories going on there of like what exactly happened did gotch try to pay somebody to injure him or you know what really happened there but when it came to the match itself um gotch took advantage of the injury and he won both falls in only 20 minutes so kind of that previous one extended out to two hours this one was was much quicker and so he got him with his toe hold which apparently gotch was very well known for that and so, as we mentioned, those 3,000 matches for Hack, um, he actually ends up just losing two of them. And it was both to Gotch, and it was, you know, one was shrouded in, you know, poor tactics by Gotch, maybe cheating, um, possibly a fixed match. And then the other one, Hack was injured. And so, it was kind of a, you know, a sad way to see his wrestling career come to an end because he does retire after this. Yeah, a lot of people were um, speculating that, you know, so Hack was friends with a guy named Jack Curley, uh, who was the promoter of the fight, and they were good friends going back many years. Uh, Curley had a lot of money in the fight, and a lot of people are speculating or speculate that Hack may have postponed the match or, you know, moved it to another day um, because this injury happened only a few weeks out of the contest. Uh, people believe that Hack went through with it primarily because of his friendship with Curly, and he didn't want Curly to lose out any potential money for it. The match is said to have the same problems with the referee, um, some cheating, uh, other things as well. As Brent was mentioning, Hack got out of sight after this match. Um, he's feeling a little embarrassed. Um, many people still considered him to be a victor, though, which is interesting to note um, that this guy who won or lost two matches in a, in a foreign land to him um, was being considered a victor by the people of that country. So that just goes to show you, um, you know, how well-respected uh, Hack was and that there may be a lot of reputation uh, or a lot of, the, the claims may be reputable that uh, Hack, or his opponent, was cheating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that really, really jumps out. Like when you see, typically, Americans are very, you know, on board with, you know, American athletes, um, but to kind of see that, you know, kind of rally behind Hack. Um, definitely no one likes to see people cheat. And so, yeah, that was kind of talked about. It's kind of a sad way to see him end his career. But yeah, the, apparently that right knee never really recovered or not back to full strength, and he ended up retiring to, to pursue some of his other interests. And so kind of his legacy, he was believed to be the creator of... Um, the bear hug in wrestling. I'll kind of let, you know, Damien talk about this. He definitely seems to be one who probably had a bunch of bear hugs going on back uh, in the day. Yeah. So, you know, again, going back to my somewhat limited wrestling experience, it was very common in the heavier weight classes uh, to use the move called the bear hug um, just because heavyweights weren't normally very agile. Um, so that they weren't doing a lot of single leg, double leg takedowns. Um, me, you know, very agile, uh, but I still got some use out of the uh, bear hug. So a couple of things that we wanted to note about that. Um, if you think about it, a lot of people are probably familiar with the term bear hug in general, but as far as wrestling is concerned, you go up to an individual, your opponent, um, and you're essentially hugging them. But when you uh, get your hands around their back, instead of like interweaving your fingers, most often you rotate one of your hands um, opposite of the other and kind of lock your hands together. Um, with this grip that's pretty strong, and you start to pull in a lot. So you're putting, pulling a lot of force into this move. Um, a couple things that you can do, or that I like to do at the time, was you can actually get your uh, chin to go into the opponent's um, shoulder, uh, which really, uh, if you've ever had like someone mess with pressure points or anything, putting a lot of pressure on the shoulder area, especially with something as sharp as the, uh, the chin, it really makes you want to give in that area. Once you start to give there, then it gives the wrestler some more positioning and some advantageous um, positioning. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting move when you think like, oh, you know, like a like a bear hug in wrestling, but uh, definitely seems to be something that could be effective, especially for some of the, the burlier boys. And so kind of continuing on with his legacy, um, 
it was kind of considered looking back that uh, this was the golden age of professional wrestling. And we got to, you know, definitely see that now. Definitely not what it used to be, but um, it was kind of, it was the most popular sport. Um, and it was kind of claimed that it was the most popular sport on every continent, which is kind of crazy. But, um, you know, it was really as that one historian talked about, like the Gotch-Hackenschmidt rivalry was huge. And I mean, it was known around the world. And so, you know, he was considered a, a superstar, you know, of the early 20th century. And um, all of his matches, they were all front page news. As we'd see now, maybe something like the World Cup, something like that, kind of go into front page news. Um, there were postcards, cabinet cards, magazine articles that you know fans of all ages collected. Um, he also kind of had a, a major influence on modern wrestling, kind of moving from that Greco-Roman style, kind of bringing to a more modern style. But yeah, his his overall impact in terms of wrestling was huge on kind of you know how things progressed in the future. Moving on from all of that history we've got on the uh, wrestling portion of Hack's life, uh, he did a lot of weightlifting and uh, strength training, strongman in general. Uh, so he was known also as a pioneer in the field of weightlifting. Uh, he invented the hack squat, which is named after him, obviously. Um, he helped popularize the modern bench press. Um, as we mentioned earlier, that record of the 334 pounds um, with the wrestler's bridge that we talked about. Um, that's similar to a modern day floor press, except with uh, the eccentric wrestler's bridge. But yeah, that's one thing. Just kind of think of like, this is the guy responsible for all those, all those bros in there. Every <laughs> Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, hitting national chess day, George Hackensmith. So, I mean, the guy responsible for the bench press, I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. I'd never really thought about the history of the bench press, but um, this is the guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. That's uh, that's crazy that something, the bench press is easily the uh, the most common lift that you're going to see, especially gym bros do in the gym. So to think that it comes from this guy that's done so much with his life already up to this point with wrestling, um, but that he's also a pioneer in the field of weightlifting. Um, it's a crazy accomplishment. Uh, moving on into some of the weightlifting championships he was a part of. Uh, one of those was the 1898 Russian Weightlifting Championships. Bench pressed 271 pounds uh, in an effort to win a pair of pants, <laughs> uh, which is a yeah. crazy feat. I, I saw that story. That was interesting. Like, can you imagine, like, at, at what situation, like, what were the living conditions like back then that, you know, instead of getting, like, this nice trophy or, like, a sum of money, like, oh, this was the Russian weightlifting championships and you're getting a <laughs> pair of pants. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about my uh, Russian history to know what exactly was going on in terms of like their economy back then, but it seemed like they were really, really in need if they were giving away a pair of pants for uh, a weightlifting championship. Man, maybe that's the, um, the next evolution is, uh, how we grew up now and, you know, we get socks and other pieces of clothing. For Hack, it was a pair of pants. <laughs> a pair of pants. Yeah, I mean, that's epic. That's yeah. Uh, he also popularized the deadlift uh, with the arms behind the body. Uh, he was said to have lifted with great form. Uh, obviously, with a great of, uh, as great of a career as he had, he had to place plenty of focus on doing the movements heavily, but also correctly. Uh, in 1902... At the age of 25, uh, he jumped 100 times over a table with his feet tied together, uh, which is also another crazy feat. Like, I, I don't think that I could jump once over a table with my feet tied together. Yeah, I was trying to think about, like, what, what size table is this that this guy with his feet tied together can jump <laughs> completely over it? I mean, he's, he's clocking in at 5'9". I'm sure he's got a good vertical. But, I mean, I just, 100 times, too. And who's like, yeah, let me just try to jump over this table 100 times. He's a, he definitely did some interesting things in his time. Yeah. Um, so jumping ahead into the later part of his life, he, uh, there's actually, I think there's a photograph of him in his 70s or 80s jumping um, over tables. And it's, I mean, he looks like he's in his 70s or 80s. And to see someone do that is, is crazy. Um, he set several records in weightlifting um, after that point at 25. Uh, one of the, Points to mention is the Iron Cross 
uh, which is 89 pounds in his left hand, 90 pounds in his right hand, uh, with both arms fully extended. Uh, he was considered the strongest and best developed man in the world at this point. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting to see that iron cross. Like, I mean, most people, you probably have a dominant hand or dominant arm, but it was just strange to me reading about 89 pounds in his left hand and 90 in the right hand. I mean, maybe they they actually weighed the the dumbbells or, you know, whatever he was using for this. And, you know, one clocked in at 89 instead of 90. But, like, why it wasn't 90 in both hands, I thought was kind of kept strange. Yeah, one of the um, events in my first strongman competition – was um, a hammer hold. It was Thor's hammer hold. So it was uh, a hammer that looked like Thor's hammer. Um, it w- weighed, I want to say, 45 pounds, maybe more. Uh, it was pretty large, and it also had a chain hanging off of it. And the event was to hold that in front of you with both hands for time. And I want to say that I got a minute and 30 or a minute and 40 seconds. <laughs> so to see, you know, 45 pounds compared to 90 pounds in each hand fully extended. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I think about doing like a, um, like a dumbbell, like lateral raise with like 25 pounds. It's like <laughs> holding, like doing it with 90 pounds or holding it up with 90 pounds is just, I don't, I mean, this is listed as one of his records. So I don't think this one's a tall tale. I mean, I think he did this one. Uh, so one more thing about him in his late seventies and eighties Uh, He was known, or it's said that he jumped 50 times over a chair. Uh, He could still bench press 150 pounds at this time, and he was able to run seven miles in 45 minutes. Yeah, it was kind of described that he did that once a week. Wow. I mean, like, the the jumping over a chair, okay, like, this guy likes to jump over household objects. Like, that's (laughs) a little interesting. Yeah. The 150, I mean, in his mid-80s, I mean, you know, that's nothing to you know, nothing to spit at, but running seven miles in 45 minutes and in your mid eighties, I don't know. I feel like that's bananas. That's like a sub seven minute pace. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty easy for, you know, the burly boys. I I could probably do, uh, do that feat. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, you know, in your car, but, uh, that was impressive. Maybe I could do a mile in 45 minutes. We'll see someday. (laughs) Okay. So kind of jumping into his diet. And so we're kind of going to see a a weird dynamic here with his diet. And so he was definitely, I would say, pretty strict on his diet. It was kind of mentioned um, he didn't consume any alcohol, no coffee, which is why the coffee thing is kind of interesting. I mean, I don't drink coffee, but like why that was targeted is something that he didn't want to consume. I mean, maybe that was misconceptions back then, but no tobacco either, which, of course, you know pharmacy over here that that's a good decision don't use tobacco <laughs> it was also stated this doesn't really fit into diet but i had to throw it in somewhere that he advocated moderation in sexual intercourse man and i guess that's a an energy kind of thing but i mean <laughs> you know i mean whatever you gotta do man there's a there's a lot of stigma and a lot of um i don't know the word for it but in professional athletes you know you'll hear it said a lot that uh they'll you know abstain the night before competition or they will the night before competition um, because they believe there's some kind of something that happens with the body with, you know, maybe testosterone or something um, that uh, improves their performance. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to see because he didn't have modern science to back any of this up. I mean, you know, alcohol and tobacco were incredibly commonplace, you know, back in the day, but he, he knew enough to say, you know, no to alcohol, no to tobacco. And then, of course, like, you know, maybe there is something to this this moderation that he advocated for. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting story to see. But um, definitely um, kind of maybe describe him as a carnivore during some of his, uh, his strongman weightlifting days. Um, it was said Cochran, um, his manager, back when he was wrestling, invited him over to his flat to eat one day. And the man proceeded to eat eight to nine eggs, a full porterhouse steak, and an entire wheel of, it was chamomile burnt, camembert cheese. I don't know, just, you know, I looked that cheese up and it's this just like large wheel of cheese. And so, I mean, this is definitely, you know, a, a man after my own heart, like taking out all these eggs and steak. I mean, you know, 
this guy was doing it right back then for sure. Yeah. Have you ever, um, have you ever heard of the carnivore diet that, um, I don't know if it originates from this person or this individual, but, uh, Jordan Peterson and his daughter, I think Michaela talk about the carnivore diet. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. 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 They use it a lot. Um, to kind of manage their inflammatory diseases. Mm. And that's definitely been something, um, there's not a lot of data really to back that up, but there's a lot of anecdotes of people, um, you eat nothing but meat. And, you know, you're taking out a lot of these grains, a lot of, you know, all carbohydrates essentially. And a lot of people find that, you know, maybe some of those carbohydrates, you know, whether it's gluten or other, you know, refined sugars or anything along those lines make their inflammatory conditions much worse and so that's kind of a lot of times you know in the management of some inflammatory diseases they recommend why don't you just go ahead and try a a gluten-free diet or a grain-free diet or you know something along those lines just you know see if it works but yeah so and he kind of he makes this weird jump and so during his wrestling career um it was kind of said that you know as kind of mentioned with this this story that you know he would often eat six eggs and a steak as a snack (laughs) sound like my snacks man yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, eating eating people out of house and home. Like, I hope he made enough money to afford this. I mean, you know, I'm curious, though, like, what was this man eating for a meal if he had a steak and six eggs for a snack? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and this is a big but, you know, things really turned downhill for George in his retirement. Oh, man. And what do you I do? Mean, you know, Damien's been a vegan for 12 years now. So <laughs> we didn't really relate to this. Man, which which you know another Damien? Because <laughs> yeah. I am not a vegan man. I if anything, yeah. I'm close to a carnivore diet. Yeah, those not initiated Damien is Damien is very much not on board with the uh, the vegetarian or vegan lifestyle. He's definitely all about uh, being a carnivore. And you know, I'm right there with you. You know, yeah, I eat, you know, vegetable here and there, but you know, yeah. definitely you know that chicken, beef, you know, steak, everything. But um. Yeah, so as mentioned, he became a strict vegetarian after retiring. And not only that, and it's kind of, it's interesting to see this happening, you know, decades ago. He switches to avoiding all artificial foods, which is kind of a movement that's going on right now. A lot of people, you know, are kind of trending towards like, ah, I want to eat natural, I want to eat natural, I want to eat fresh foods, like I want to eat fruits and vegetables and things that are uncooked. And so, like, you know, is he some sort of pioneer in this field or, you know, are people getting inspiration from him to go on these diets? But I thought it was a a strange term for him. And I wonder, you know, currently they've got all these new foods and stuff. So you can you can get a decent amount of protein, you know, on one of these vegetarian diets. But I wonder what was he consuming to sustain, you know, his his muscle mass and his physical performance, like going on this vegetarian diet. I mean, empirically maybe there's something to look into there because he uh obviously we just finished talking about him in his 80s being able to run seven miles in 45 minutes and bench 150 and uh jump a lot so maybe those things um maybe this diet contributed to the longevity after his career um but yeah it's definitely interesting to note yeah and you know of note as well like you know there weren't steroids back then you know when he was competing and so you know, he didn't have any artificial help. Um, so, I mean, really diet was huge and yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting to see how well he was able to sustain after making that dietary switch. So moving on to, uh, later on in his life when he was starting to get into writing and becoming an author, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I know he has uh, at least three or four books out on different things, um, such as physical culture, training and uh, philosophy of, uh, strength training and other other things. Uh, so some of these books are The uh, Complete Science of Wrestling, uh, Man and Cosmic Antagonism to Mind and Spirit. Uh, he actually wrote this while he interned as a prisoner of war in Germany. Uh, he wrote Fitness and Yourself, Consciousness and Character, True Definitions of Entity, Individuality, Personality, Non-Entity, uh, The Way to Live in Health and Physical Fitness, and the three memories and forgetfulness, what they are and what their significance is in human life. Yeah, so kind of, as I was looking through some of those titles, I mean, 
if you would take a look at what we've already talked about with this guy, all this weightlifting, you know, him being a strong man, him being a wrestler, like I would be willing to bet a lot of money that this guy was just a meathead, you know, <laughs> probably poorly educated, um, you know, a bro scientist, you know, to say the least. And here he is writing books about cosmic antagonism of mind and spirit. Like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I just I mean, know enough to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I'm struggling to get some of these words out. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's talking about true definitions of entity, individuality, personality, non-entity. So, I mean, talk about a guy who was well-rounded. Now, of course, I haven't read these books. You know, I don't know if they're complete nonsense. But I don't think so. He was generally regarded as just, you know, very smart and, you know, kind of get into this. Um, he was considered, you know, soft-spoken, cultured, intelligent, you know, obviously by writing all these books. It was said that he could speak seven languages, which again, it's just kind of like, when do you learn to do all of that with everything else this guy has going on? Yeah, I barely have enough time to eat, sleep and train and go to work, let alone learn seven languages write books uh, and do all these other things. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, a little tenuous with one language, (laughs) but, um, you know, and you can imagine with, you know, everything this guy had going on from, you know, physical feats and, you know, he's intelligent and I'm, I'm guessing he made a lot of money during all of this, but, um, he was considered to be adored by women and adored by men as well. You know, I guess <laughs> women wanted to be with him. Men wanted to be him. You know, that kind of classic thing. Um, mm-hmm. He was said to be the darling of society. Mm. And, you know, maybe the most interesting or maybe most shocking thing about, you know, this entire research was there's this quote from U.S. President, President um, Teddy Roosevelt. He said, if I wasn't president of the United States, I would like to be George Hackenschmidt. Just wrapping your head around that i mean you know this guy i mean he's russian and he you know he lives his entire career you know overseas you know a lot of it being in london but can you imagine you know current president saying you know if i wasn't president um we won't get into any politics here but like i'd like to be you know this random russian guy like i mean that just wouldn't go over well yeah and i mean that's that's a very powerful quote that i think speaks to just his legacy of all these different things we talked about, you know, 3,000 matches in wrestling, writing six books, um, and not easy books to write uh, based on the title and information, um, and doing all these other crazy feats. Uh, one random thing to throw in is that it's said that he actually climbed the tower of uh, the Alaviste Church uh, while holding kettlebells, 20 kilos each, and it, it was 100 meters um, while carrying uh, the weights. Yeah, I mean, this guy was crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of these feats that we talked about, I mean, picking up horses, tying your feet together, jumping over tables. I mean, this guy was, I mean, he was incredibly innovative. And we see that, you know, maybe some of that stuff didn't stick. You know, people aren't trying to lift horses these days. But I mean, you know, the bench press stuck and, you know, the hack squat stuck. And I mean, for sure, his impact on society is huge. And yeah, I mean, talk about worldwide respect. And you've got the president of the United States. It's like, I mean, we talked about being admired by men. I mean, the, the U.S. <laughs> president is like, I wish I was that guy. Yeah. Man, just trying to think of any possible real-life modern comparison, like the only people I could even potentially think about are guys like David Goggins, you know, ultramarathon, um, all this crazy history behind him, you know, maybe Jocko, um, some of the other guys, but like those guys are crazy in their own respect. You know, something, some switch is flipped to be able to accomplish this much in one lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you look at, um, you know, George's history, I mean, I, I definitely think those are some good comparisons. I mean, especially when you see somebody like David Goggins and the, the determination and the, the discipline that he has. And I mean, for Hackenschmidt to be a world-class weightlifter, strongman, wrestler, to be so intelligent, to be able to speak seven languages, write all these books. I mean, the level of determination, I mean, we don't know about as much about him as we know about somebody like David Goggins, but you've got to imagine that they have similar kinds of personalities in terms of their determination and their 
their hard work and, you know, the, the get up every day and get after it mentality. I mean, it's got to be, you know, similar between these kinds of guys. Yeah. I mean, I think most men or most people in general would be, would consider their lives to be a success if they were to accomplish even 10 or 20% of what Hackenschmidt accomplished in his life. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you just write those. I mean, we, we just copied down six of those books that we talked about. I mean, you write those six books and you know, you've done something, Mm -hmm. let alone be a world champion wrestler set weightlifting records. Yeah. I mean, you know, I thought when we got into first researching this episode, it was like, oh, this guy created the hack squat and the bench press. And I was like, oh man, let's make a cool episode. Yeah. And it's like, well, wait a second. This guy did everything. Yeah. That was only one part of what he did. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all in all, he made a, a very large impact, you know, in, in all these different areas. And I mean, definitely, you know, you walk into any gym right now and there are things from George Hackenschmidt, you know, whether it's the bench press or whether it's the hack squat directly have their roots in, you know, this guy's history. And, and really, I think it, it speaks a lot about his innovation to be able to, I mean, we talked about like the crazy things that he did, but you know, some of them stuck and some of them, you know, been around for decades. Yeah. I mean, all of these things just speak to uh, how burly he was as an individual. So obviously this is the uh, BBHQ podcast, just the burly boy headquarters. Uh, So all of these individuals that we're going to be discussing in future episodes um, have various traits that make them burly in one way or another. And Hackenschmidt clearly had a lot. Uh, So we'll get into that in future episodes.